0: Morning. Good morning. Welcome to Woodside Community Church. Excited to be here. I'm excited that we can officially announce that we are residents of Woodside. So we are glad to be here. Thank you for all your help. Basically, we just dumped everything in the place. So we're technically in there, but it'll, it'll be a while. We'll have you all over, I promise, soon. Um, so we're getting there. But we're excited to be here. Uh, we're excited about the house. It is such a blessing. It's going to be such a good thing. We're, we're particularly excited about the space, especially the uh, the three bedrooms, since we also want to officially announce that Melissa is pregnant again. So we are very excited about that. So she is doing wonderfully. She is she is twelve weeks along. We're excited. We're ecstatic. She feels terrible, um, so you can pray for her. But that's a good thing. So we're very excited. Um, hopefully, Lord willing, in mid February, we'll have another. Couple other little ones running running around, and so we're growth is good. Babies are good. Um, we're we're very excited. Um, so thank you guys for your prayers and all your hard work uh, with the parsonage. We'll definitely be praying for Melissa, uh, first, so she'll start feeling better, moving, and being pregnant. Not very fun, um, but it's good. Um, but we got to get to work, right? We got to get back into our text. We're we're plugging away slowly but surely through Mark. There's so much in Mark that you can't get through it quickly. Um, so this morning we're in Mark chapter three again. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. We've got a a good one this morning. This morning we have one of the most disturbing, unsettling things that Jesus ever says. There's, There's a lot in this passage, but the one thing that everyone is drawn to, the one thing that anyone pays any attention to, is there in verse 29. It is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, or what people sometimes call the unforgivable sin. What is it? Have I committed it? Is there really something that God cannot forgive? Have you, ever, have you ever been freaked out by this verse? I definitely was freaked out a few times when I was younger about this. Like, oh, I thought something bad about the Holy Spirit. Did I, did I commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Kind of like, what, what is this thing? Right? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, any pastor will tell you that it is a fairly regular occurrence that someone will come to them and say, uh, you know, I'm afraid, that, I'm afraid that I've committed the unforgivable sin. So this passage must be handled carefully. It's an important passage, but there's so much good stuff in this passage that I don't want to just focus on this kind of one tiny thing. There's a lot else going on that I think maybe we sometimes overemphasize, this um, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit thing. So we're going to look at the whole passage and see what we can learn from it, and we'll definitely touch on that as well. So Mark 3, 20 through 35, you can find it there inside your bulletin. This is God's Word. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they of But whoever... Blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God He is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship you with brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to come and study your word and to learn about you so that we can better love you and serve you. Father, we have a difficult... Uh, passage this morning, Father. So I pray for that You would work on the, in the areas where I am weak, or the areas where I'm wrong, Father. That you would, you would correct that, Father, and that Your Spirit would work in this place, and that You would get all the glory. For all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I have a confession. I really love sandwiches. Okay, love sandwiches. You can do so many different things with sandwiches, and they're always delicious. There's a restaurant in Bayside, by where we used to live, called Press One Ninety Five. It has like 50 different types of sandwiches, and they're all amazing. Why do I say this? I have a point. I have a, I have a reason. Think about it. What is a sandwich exactly? All right, a sandwich is two delicious things, right? You got the two bread, the two pieces of bread on the outside, and then you have a bunch of delicious stuff in the middle. Right? That's what a sandwich is, and they're really good. But a sandwich is also a literary technique that Mark uses as he writes um, in this gospel. He uses it nine different times in just these 16 short chapters. This is called a Markan sandwich, M-A-R-K-A-N, a -A a Markan sandwich. It sounds delicious, but it's not. It's just just a way to to write. It's called a literary technique. What is it? It's when Mark, look at what he does here. He sandwiches one story in between two pieces of another story right? so Mark starts off telling one story then he pauses and he shifts and tells a completely different story and then he comes back and finishes the other story right so verses 20 and 21 are the first story that's our first piece of bread right then verses 22 through 30 that's the interrupting story all right that's the meat in the middle and then you have verses 31 through 35 which is the conclusion to the first story. All right, so this is a Marken sandwich. These guys, listen, were masterful writers. Right? They knew exactly what they were doing, and they wrote everything they did with a very specific purpose. So why does Mark start one story, interrupt it with another story, and then go back and finish that first story? Well, they do two things with these sandwiches. First, it ties these two stories together that would at first seem like they're unrelated emphasizing that they are, in fact, very related. And so then that combination of these two unrelated stories makes an entirely new point. All right? That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at these two stories separately and then see what Mark is trying to teach us by putting them together like this. All right, so let's start with our first story. It begins with Jesus. Remember last week, Jesus was trying to get away from the crowds, and he went up and he called his 12 apostles. The, the specific 12 that were going to be with him and follow him so he got away from the crowds for a little bit but he wasn't able to do it for very long because they're now they're back all right and they're getting in the way again they're crowding around Jesus and they're so crowding around his followers that they can't even eat that would get really frustrating he's trying to eat and the people are constantly crowding and pressing in um, but his family all right we finally got, start talking about Jesus's family they, they get wind of what's going on and they've at this point they've, they've had enough They've probably been hearing all this stuff for a while, and just kind of be like, "Ah, oh, Jesus, no, whatever, no big deal." But finally, they're 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 now ready to do something about it. So they come to seize Jesus, and it says that they think Jesus is out of his mind. And the Greek word there that is translated "seize" it's a very strong word. All right, it means to bind or to restrain or to deprive someone of their freedom right to seize means to bind and these they were so convinced that what he was doing was wrong that he was crazy that they were willing to come and forcibly take and restrain Jesus why well probably because of all of the things we've talking been talking about for these last 9 weeks He claims to forgive sins, he redefines and breaks Sabbath regulations, he's touching lepers, he's hanging out with tax collectors, he's constantly fighting with the religious leaders, and he's claiming to be God. Alright, it's not that surprising then that they thought he may be crazy. Remember we've said three things, that Jesus is either who he says he is, or he is a liar, or he is absolutely crazy. Alright, well his family takes the latter option, and they think that Jesus is crazy. John 7, 5 says that even his brothers did not believe in Jesus. Let me take a second and go on a brief tangent. Let me step back and say one thing about that. Here we have Jesus' family, and then in verses 31 and 32, we see that Jesus' brothers are specifically mentioned. And you would think that this would be pretty simple, but we like to make simple things complicated for some reason. And this may come to a surprise to some of you, but Jesus had brothers and sisters, all right? a number of them. We know of at least seven. We know of at least five brothers and at least two sisters. There may have been more. Who knows? And well, they were actually his half-brothers and sisters, right? Because Joseph wasn't his biological father, but he had the same mother. Right, why do I say that? What does all that imply? Well, it implies that Mary did not remain a virgin forever. Right? Why is that worth mentioning? Why is that important? Well, it's important because we live in a Catholic kind of heavy area. And in the Catholic Church, you're going to find the teaching that Mary never had any children, Jesus did not have brothers and sisters, and that Mary perpetually remained a virgin. But, as we can see from the text, that's just not biblical. Right? Luke 2.7 says that Jesus was Mary's firstborn. All right? Firstborn implies that there was a second or a third or a fourthborn as well. Matthew 1.18 says that when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child. Matthew 1.25 says that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now, just in case you're not up to date on your biblical euphemisms, came together and knew means to have sex with. All right, So these verses very clearly say that Mary was a virgin then she had Jesus then her and Joseph came together and they had many other children all right Mary had children Mark 6:3 talks about him it says is not this the son of Mary the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us Jesus has brothers and sisters all right this is important the bible is pretty clear here Mary is great uh, I love Mary she's good but Mary was a sinner just like you and just like me. A sinner that God used mightily in spite of her sin. All right, but that's important. Jesus, brothers and sisters. It's, it's biblical. All right, over These brothers and sisters, this family, they think that Jesus is crazy. They want to seize him, and they want to silence him. So look down at verse 31. That's where this story picks up and continues. In the first part, it just says his family in general has come. And now we're specifically told that his mother and his brothers have come. And again, they can't get through the crowd, so they send word in to Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he responds in 33 through 35, Jesus does. He says, and he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What does that mean? Well, It means exactly what we have been talking about these last few weeks. Those who are part of Jesus' family are the ones who do God's will. That's exactly what we talked about last week. That's the difference between a fan and a follower. Jesus doesn't care if you like him a little bit. He doesn't care if you say the right things. He cares about your life. Jesus says, show me by your life. James says in James chapter 2, he says, show me your faith by your works. Jesus says, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? That's what being a follower is. It's doing what the one you're following says and does. We've got to stop acting like everyone who says that they're a Christian actually is. Saying you believe in Jesus does not make you a Christian. The demons believe in Jesus, James says in that same chapter. Praying a prayer does not make you a Christian. Going to church does not make you a Christian. The grace of God bringing your dead heart back to life through the work of Jesus Christ in your place makes you a Christian. Doing the will of God does not earn your salvation. It's all grace. And that grace, though, always shows itself in some way. Jesus says that there will always be evidence. There will always be some Fruit. Right? And Jesus' statement here doesn't quite have the same effect on us as it would them back then, right? Family's kind of falling apart these days. We've got modern families and we've got families are kind of whatever you want to make it to be. But family, through first century Jewish people, was everything, right? The, The family was your life, family was your identity, family was the most important thing. And here Jesus is saying, Who is my family? It's not blood, he says. It is those who do God's will. He says it's not about flesh and blood anymore. He says it is about me. And Jesus is once again challenging the status quo. Things are changing. He doesn't care what they believed in the past. He doesn't care what they've done in the past. He says it's about me now. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's move on to the meat of our passage before we kind of come back a little bit. Look at verse 22 here. Here's where it really starts to get interesting. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. Time out for a second. Think about it with me. Think about what's going on here for just one second. Especially if you're here with us this morning and you're kind of like, Ah, I'm not sure about this whole Jesus thing. I think you guys might be a little crazy believing in this Jesus stuff. Think about those who don't believe that the Bible is true. What do they have to claim about the New Testament? Right? They have to argue that the followers of Jesus, well, Jesus died, they were disappointed. Shucks, we, we were wrong. And they're like, all right, well, we're going we're gonna to create some sort of religion. We're going to make up some stories about this Jesus, and we're going to convince all these people that Jesus was God so that we can gain a following and we can gain some fame and, and some wealth. So they get together and they write a bunch of these books and they try to make it look like Jesus was actually the Messiah. And he was actually the Son of God. All right, that's the only explanation of the New Testament that makes any sense besides it being actually true. But think about it. Imagine if 30 years from now, some of you got together, I'm dead, and you're like, oh, you know what, maybe we should try to convince everybody and make up some books and stories and convince them that, that Matthew was God and that everyone should follow him. All right? First of all, don't do that. That would be a terrible, terrible idea. But imagine if you got together in 30 years and tried to do that, tried to convince some people that I was God and that I should be followed. Why in the world would you make up anything that accused me of being Satan? Why would you make up a story that said, Oh, the most important people of the day, you know, the religious leaders back then, uh, they thought this guy was Satan, by the way. Oh, and his family? None of them believed him here. They all thought that he was absolutely crazy. And that makes no sense if you're trying to create some sort of religion. You wouldn't make up stories like this. You would only include stories that tried to make me look as good as possible. Why in the world, if you were Mark, would you record these stories unless they were actually true? Plus, why would you perpetuate some lie that was just going to make your life miserable and get you tortured and killed? It just doesn't make any sense unless it is actually true. Opponents of Christianity have still failed to come up with some way to explain the inclusion of all of these stories that discredit Jesus. Right? So we have true stories of Jesus here. Right, They wouldn't be included unless they were true. The religious leaders are calling him Satan. His family thinks he's crazy. True stories. Let's see what we can learn from them. So they've shown up, the scribes. This is kind of like a turning point with the scribes. They have stepped up their game. Right? They're no longer just kind of questioning Jesus or trying to figure a few things out. They are outright accusing Jesus here. They're saying Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. Well, who is Beelzebu? Your version may say Beelzebub, but the Greek actually says Beelzebub. Beelzebub was a Syrian god, and his name meant the Lord of the Flies. All right, that's where we get the title of the book that we were all probably made to read in high school, the Lord of the Flies. That comes from this name. But that's not who we have here. We're talking about Beelzebub. And the Hebrew word zebul, you see the ending there, it occurs five times in the Old Testament, and it refers to a prince. Or it refers to the, the place where the prince dwells, like his palace or something. So Beelzebul then probably translates Baal the prince, or maybe the dwelling place of Baal. Right? I always call him Baal, but then someone corrected me. Apparently it's Baal. Right? You see him a lot in the Old Testament. Baal was kind of like the chief rival of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And biblical writers, they're, they're insistent that there is only one God. There's only Yahweh. He's the only one. But they also, multiple times, will write that there are these other things that people think are gods that are actually demons. All right? And that's what we have here with Beelzebul, who was the prince of demons, which verse 33 clearly links with Satan. So the scribes are accusing Jesus of being possessed by Satan and by casting out demons by Satan's power. Now, this is quite an accusation, right? But Jesus doesn't seem to be very phased. If someone accused me of being possessed by Satan, I think I would be a little bit flustered. But not Jesus. What does Jesus do? Well, he drops some straight logic on these guys. Logic and reason are are gifts that God has given us that we must use. I believe that Christianity is the most reasonable and logical thing out there. We are commanded to love God with our minds, to think well about him, and to glorify him with our ability to think and reason. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, He's using logic to defeat their arguments. He easily disarms the scribes by simply pointing out that their argument is logically absurd right? Demons work for Satan. Demons are on Satan's team. Why in the world then would Satan go around attacking those that are on his side? It makes no sense for Satan to attack himself. So their accusations just don't make any sense and Jesus just kind of does away with them kind of with one little statement. A house divided against itself will not stand, Jesus says. Trivia. Does anyone, anyone know their history? Does anyone know who most famously borrowed that line from Jesus? Anyone at all? No? That's, that's, that's Abraham Lincoln is very famous for stealing that line from Jesus. In one of his debates before he was president, in one of his most famous speeches in 1858, Lincoln says, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. And Lincoln's words would prove to be prophetic when less than three years later, the country would collapse into civil war. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus says, I cannot cast out Satan's minions by Satan's power. It makes no sense. Jesus is attacking Satan. Then look next at verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. But what in the world does that mean? Well, Jesus is pretty clearly talking about himself here. He's the one, Jesus is the stronger man that has come and entered the strong man's house and bound the strong man, Satan. And he is now plundering his house, which he is now setting his captives free. We see this in a number of places in the New Testament. Hebrews 2 14 and 15 says, Through Jesus' death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 1 John 3 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2 15 says, Jesus disarmed the rulers. And authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. All right? The rulers and authorities are not kings, they're not governments. He's talking about spiritual rulers and authorities. In John 12, 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus is coming. Jesus has dealt Satan his death blow. Jesus has bound Satan. Alright, Satan is not dead yet. He's not completely inactive, but his defeat is guaranteed. He cannot stop the gospel from going forth. He cannot hold on to those that Jesus has set free. Jesus has come and bound the strong man. So he has now easily dismissed their ridiculous accusations, and now Jesus takes the opportunity. He he turns the tables. Now Jesus is going on the offensive. And he says one of the most troubling things that he says in all of the Bible. Look at 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. A few years back ago, a few years back, did you see this in the news? There was this, There's this group that are named the Rational Response Squad. All right, there's this group of really loud um, atheists, and they made headlines in the news um, by coming up with what they called the Blasphemy Challenge. Did you hear anything about this? The Blasphemy Challenge. It was all over the news. What was it? They challenged and said, if you will record yourself committing the unforgivable sin and damning your soul to hell, and then upload it onto YouTube, they'll give you a free DVD. <laughs> Sweet. Free DVD. Alright, that's awesome. Right. But, what were they doing? What, What was going on here? They said you can damn your soul however you want in the video, but you have to include these words somewhere in it to get the free DVD. You have to say, I deny the Holy Spirit. Now listen, that is definitely sinful. That is definitely a bad idea. You should not do that. But, this whole blasphemy challenge thing is based on a misunderstanding of our passage this morning. Which is not surprising because most atheists make no effort whatsoever to actually try and understand what the Bible says. They just throw out silly, misinformed accusations. That's what's going on here. They believe that denying the existence of the Holy Spirit is the blasphemy against the Spirit. But that's simply wrong. All right? They should try and actually read the text. No theologian, no pastor who actually has, has studied the text thinks that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is denying that the Holy Spirit exists. Listen, if that's the sin, then we are all guilty of that sin at some point or another. We have all denied, by word or by deed, the existence of the Holy Spirit at some point in our life. Countless, millions of people, I would assume, have denied the existence of the Holy Spirit in their heart and been saved by God's grace later on. It happens all of the time. And I can almost guarantee to you That some people, I still check the headlines every now and then. I haven't found one yet. But I can guarantee to you that sometime in the future, one of these people that took the blasphemy challenge will be saved by God's grace in the future. I guarantee it will happen sometime. I I, I might be wrong, but I'm almost positive it will happen. Because they haven't actually committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So, what is it? We're getting there. Hold on one more second. One more second. Christians are usually so concerned, we get so caught up and obsessed with verse 29 that we completely skip over verse 28. One of the most comforting and encouraging verses in the entirety of Scripture. All sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. Do you see that verse? Are you actually paying attention? All sins, whatever blasphemies you utter, can be forgiven. Paul confesses himself that he was a blasphemer, that he had blasphemed God. And there was forgiveness for Paul. And this is one of the key truths of Scripture. This is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from everything else, the forgiveness of sins. Every other religion says, be good enough. It says, make sure that your good outweighs your bad just by a little bit, and then maybe you'll be saved. But the gospel is completely different. It says that you cannot Be good enough. It says that you cannot do enough, keep the rules, or be good enough to be saved. But that through the work of Jesus Christ, you can still be forgiven. Not because of you, but because of him. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. We cannot deny that. We have built up this great debt that must be paid, and we cannot pay it. But Jesus pays it for us, and he offers us forgiveness. And forgiveness is all over the Bible. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Acts 10.43 Everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Psalm 103 is maybe my favorite psalm. Just a few verses. Psalm 103, verses 8-12 through The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, and praise God that He doesn't. Nor does He repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. This is one of the most unique, attractive things about Jesus in Christianity. We all know that we have sinned. Right? If you're being honest with yourself, you know that you're a sinner. Jesus is the only one that offers us forgiveness for those sins. He is the only one that offers to take care of that guilt that we all feel. This, this passage was extremely encouraging me, to me this week. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. One of the most comforting verses in the Bible followed by one of the most disturbing. Look at 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This one verse, and kind of a general failure to actually understand this verse in its context, has tormented countless Christians over the years. Have I committed the unforgivable sin? Have I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. Did I do it? Am I, am I stuck? Am I damned? What's going on here? First, what is blasphemy? Well, blasphemy simply means to slander or to defile. And the Bible uses it pretty much solely in reference to kind of infractions committed against God. So what is blasphemy then against the Holy Spirit? What is this most grievous of sins? People have tried to make all of these kind of claims about what it is. Some people have said that it was adultery. Some people have tried to say that it was homosexuality, others have said that the unforgivable sin was suicide, but what is it? Well, surprisingly enough, and you're going to be a little disappointed here. All right, I don't have this great brilliant kind of thing that I'm going to drop on you here. Surprisingly enough, the answer is right there in the text. All right, it's not a secret. Look at verse 30. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That's it. That's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It is not some indefinable offense against God, but it is the specific accusation that Jesus is motivated by evil rather than good. That he is empowered by the devil rather than God. It is calling the good work of Jesus and Jesus himself evil. These guys weren't denying that Jesus was doing these amazing things. They couldn't deny it. They had seen him heal people. They had seen him cast out demons. But they were so stubborn, they so refused to believe that they attributed his power to evil rather than good. They so resisted the obvious work of the Spirit that there was no longer any hope for forgiveness. That is the specific contextual meaning of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But it still has application for us today. It's not so much that there's this like one particular sin that if you commit, you're out. Or if you accidentally say these few words, oh, sorry, that was it, you're out. No, it is kind of a, it's a pattern of consistent, willful rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit. There comes a point after you continually over an extended period of time resist the clear and obvious work of the Holy Spirit. When, that, when the Spirit will pull back and no longer convict a person of sin and lead that person to repentance. Listen, the Bible is clear that any sin we ask forgiveness for will be forgiven. But remember, salvation is by grace. It's God's work. Faith and repentance are, are gifts that He grants to us. There is no forgiveness without repentance and faith first. So to willfully and persistently resist the holy spirit the one who gives the repentance and faith makes forgiveness impossible right because it is the spirit that applies what jesus has accomplished right that's that's all we're talking about here so have you committed the unforgivable sin and actually i'm pretty confident that no one in here has it's very unlikely right the old saying is actually quite helpful if you are concerned that you have committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, then you haven't committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. All right? Your concern is evidence that there is still hope for repentance and forgiveness. But don't just leave here feeling comforted. All right? This verse is here for a reason. It is a warning to us. There comes a point when God will eventually pull back His Spirit. Don't just sputter around indefinitely kind of playing at this Jesus stuff. This is serious stuff. Choose a side. Eternity is on the line. And it is only those who by the grace of God do His will. It is only the followers and not the fans who will be saved. So let's get back to our, to our sandwich, to our Markin sandwich as we close up. How do these two seemingly random stories relate? When the bread, the story at the beginning and the end, we have Jesus' family, right? We have those that should be the closest to Jesus, that should be followers of Jesus, coming to him and trying to bind Jesus. While in the middle of the story, the middle story, the meat, Jesus himself comes and binds the strong man, Satan, and frees Satan's captives, us so that we can now become his followers. Jesus is the stronger man. Jesus is the only unbound one, and he comes to bind the binder and set his prisoners free. These two stories joined together make a strong statement about true versus false discipleship. True disciples are with Jesus and do God's will. They are Jesus' true family. False disciples attempt to restrain Jesus from his mission or to redirect his mission or to redefine his mission. And this is potentially as dangerous and blasphemous as accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan. To seek to avert Jesus from his mission, to seek to warp or change the mission of Jesus is satanic, as Jesus makes very clear in Mark chapter 8 with Peter, verse 33. Remember what he says. To Peter, his closest friend, he says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. uh, Peter rejected what Jesus was trying to do. Then three times, Peter specifically denies Jesus. Peter blasphemed multiple times. But there was forgiveness even for Peter. And God used him mightily in the history of his church. Jesus takes God's will very seriously, and he calls us to as well. Are you doing the will of God? What is the will of God, by the way? People people go, I'm trying to find God's will for my life. They're kind of like acting like God's will was hidden or something. but it's not hidden, alright? It's in the Word. And it's very clear there in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul writes, For this is the will of God. Alright, here you go. This is excited, Here's the answer. Here's the will of God. He says, your sanctification. Or some translations say, your holiness. It's that simple. God's will for your life is not hidden. It's that you are to be progressively made more holy and more like your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is that happening in your life? But again, we will not be perfect. We remain sinners saved by grace. But Jesus has come to bind Satan and set his captives free. Though we sin continuously and sometimes grievously, we attempt to bind Jesus. We try to limit and constrain Jesus and, and form or shape Him into something that we like in our own image, something that we can control and something that gives us comfort or power. But Jesus says it will not work. I am the unbound one. We have all greatly sinned against this unbound one. But He gives us great comfort this morning. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they are. If that is not a relief to you, and it was a great relief to me this week as I, as I studied and worked through this passage. If that is not a great relief to you, then you do not understand sin. And you do not understand just how sinful and wicked your heart is. It is such a relief to me because I can see my own heart. I know how, how dark it is. I can see how prone and quick I am to want to run after sin and to kind of turn away from God and do my own I need a Savior who is willing to forgive all of my sins, no matter how wicked. Are you a murderer? Jesus offers you forgiveness. Are you an adulterer? Jesus says there is forgiveness. Have you aborted one of your children? Jesus says there can be forgiveness. Are you a liar, a cheat, and a thief? Jesus offers me forgiveness. Be encouraged by the great love. And patience and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. No one who comes to him in repentance and faith will be turned away. No one sin puts you out of the reach of the grace of God. Does anyone know who David Berkowitz is? Any of you familiar with David Berkowitz? This is back before I was born, 1977, I think. David Berkowitz was a mass murderer in New York City. kind of running around for a period of time, killing, I think he ended up killing six women and um, very much, uh, I think, injured a number of other women as well. And he got caught. David Berkowitz, a mass murderer. Well, there's an elder at the church I previously worked at who, before he was saved, spent a, a fair amount of time in prison. And now that he's been out and now that he's been saved and changed by God, he now goes back in and works in the prisons and, and kind of runs like prison ministry and shares the gospel with some of these guys. And this elder at this church has gotten to know and spend a fair amount of time with David Berkowitz, one of the most infamous murderers in, in our country's history. And it turns out that about 10 years after these murders, about 10 years into his six-lifetime-long sentence, God saved David Berkowitz. And these two men now exchange letters regularly, and I've had the privilege of getting to sit down and kind of read through these letters, and I was so encouraged by this great sinner's understanding of grace. And one of the most recent letters, it was just a few weeks ago, David Berkowitz, the man who killed six women in cold blood, wrote this, "'I so deeply appreciate what our God did for a terrible sinner like I was before I came to Christ.'" Listen, God can forgive even David Berkowitz, a mass murderer. Murder is not the unforgivable sin. Do you feel like you've done something that is just so bad that God surely cannot forgive you? Do you feel like you're not good enough? Welcome to the club, all right? That is the key first step, understanding that you're not good enough and that you cannot do anything about it. But he can. The hospital is a, the church is a hospital for the sin. We are all sinners saved by grace. Listen, all of us are sinners, right? Every single one of us in this room saved by God's grace. Be encouraged and thank God this morning that He is a merciful and forgiving God. There is not one instance in the Bible of someone coming to God and asking for forgiveness and that person being denied. The gospel is that we all deserve to be punished as the blasphemer against the Holy Spirit. We have all likewise blasphemed, rejected, and sinned against God. But because of Jesus, because He was our perfect substitute, because He took our place, we can be forgiven. But be careful about willfully and continually resisting the work of the Holy Spirit on your heart. You do not have forever. Jesus says, Those who do God's will are his family. He says, repent and believe and follow me. Have you done that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even difficult passages. Father, we thank you um, that you are a God who forgives. We thank you that there is great mercy and love and forgiveness to be found at the foot of the cross in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that you can forgive even a sinner like me. I thank you that you can forgive a sinner even like David Berkowitz. Father, I thank you that you are a loving and merciful God. And I thank you so much that, Father, it is not about how good we can be, because I would be doomed if that were the case. Father, I thank you that it is not dependent on my goodness or my works, but that it is not dependent on the perfect work of Jesus Christ in my place. Father, we confess our sin. We confess our sin against you. We confess our need for repentance. And we confess our need to be made more and more like Jesus Christ, the only one who is worthy. So, Father, make us more like him. Father, comfort us um, with your word and with your offer of forgiveness. Father, warn us um, by these scribes and their willful rejection of the Holy Spirit and the calling of the Holy Spirit evil. Father, protect us um, from any such um, beliefs. So, Father, I thank you for this time. I pray that your spirit would work in people's hearts, that you would convict us of sin, that you would bring dead hearts back to life, and that you would get all the glory. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.